0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places like The Dispatch, Arc Digital, and other places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. Finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. In the first segment of this week's show, I'm going to talk about the blow-up this week over a story in the Atlantic magazine that accused Donald Trump of denigrating the U.S. military and its veterans. And then in the second segment, we're going to talk through the 2020 election, where we are, and compare where we are now to where we were at this point in 2016. And after that, we'll wrap up with this week's light item. So that's this week's agenda, and we're going to jump right Right in. So, one of the big news stories this week happened a little bit later in the week. It was where the Atlantic's editor in chief, Jeffrey Goldberg, broke a story that quoted Donald Trump as denigrating the American troops and refusing to go through or not wanting to go through with a military ceremony for the troops who were in a cemetery. I believe this was over in France. I was a little unclear on the exact place where all this took place when I read through the story. But in any event, this specific event involving Donald Trump took place in 2018. So it's a little bit of an older story. But the people who are Jeffrey Goldberg's sources, they were telling him the events of what happened here and giving him these quotes for this event. And he allegedly got his story from four anonymous former officials in the Trump administration. It sounded from the piece that all of them were now former officials, and they're now giving this information to him for this story. The first two paragraphs of the piece that he wrote really sets up everything, and gives you all you need to know. The rest of it sort of goes through history of where the event was, what the events were around it with Trump. And there's sort of this pseudo-psychological analysis that goes on towards the end of the piece that's not quite as important as what is up front with the quotes and everything else. So I'm just going to read off the first two paragraphs of this piece. I'll also link to it in the show notes. So if you just want to grab it and read it yourself, you're free to do that. Uh, I'm just going to read off the first two paragraphs here because that gives you sort of the context. It gives you the main lines of whatever he's talking about and why this became an issue. So, the Atlantic story starts out as follows. When President Donald Trump canceled a visit to the aisne Marne American Cemetery near Paris in 2018, he blamed rain for the last-minute decision, saying that the helicopter couldn't fly, unquote, and that the Secret Service wouldn't drive him there. Neither claim was true. Trump rejected the idea of the visit because he feared his hair would become disheveled in the rain and because he did not believe it important to honor American war dead, according to four people with firsthand knowledge of the discussion that day. In a conversation with senior staff members on the morning of the scheduled visit, Trump said, Why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers. In a separate conversation on the same trip, Trump referred to to the more than 1,800 Marines who lost their lives at Wood as, unquote, suckers for getting killed. So those are the first two paragraphs, and those are the two main incendiary quotes there where people are saying this is what Trump said. Now, right after this story got published, the attacks and doubts flew from Trump's defenders and those who are just generally skeptical about the media. Though They just flew in and attacked this story straight up. Uh, because while Trump has absolutely attacked military veterans like John McCain or Kaiser, the Kaiser Khan family, if you remember back to the 2016 election, Kaiser Khan and his wife—they were a Gold Star family because one of their children died as a result of you know, just warfare. So Trump has attacked individuals like McCain and the Kahn family along these vine lines and denigrated the service that was there. So these quotes fall into that same line, but it's just far broader because he's talking about a much broader swath of people. So the defenders had to come out immediately and they were attacking mainly this bane point saying that this didn't fit because they were not This was more general instead of a specific attack. Trump wasn't involved with any personal spats with these people or these veterans were in the cemetery, so it didn't fit his general record and statements involving the military overall. So they attacked it because this story seeks to undermine Trump's message of being both pro-military and pro-veteran, both of which were highlighted during the Republican convention. They were highlighting what they were doing for veterans affairs and also in building the military so this story goes right at those two points it's also just another story that undermines the character of donald trump so as a general rule as a general, just a general rule of thumb with these stories, I give them about forty-eight to seventy-two hours to breathe and just pan out. Because what happens is these stories get released, and then people immediately spin them up into a massive media storm. And then you have to—it's just a matter of figuring out whether or not if this, see if this is one that sticks, or whether or not the evidence is not going to stick at all. And you have to do it with a lot of these stories, especially the more inflammatory ones, just to see if they have the weight to stick around because too many of them, they either just fall apart completely or you learn that there's more nuance to them and you have, and that sort of colors what you see about the story for this one, because this happened sometime Thursday, late Thursday, I wasn't able to put it in the newsletter. It came out so late. This story sort of ended up in a stalemate for me at this point. I can't tell right now whether or not this is to be considered totally true are totally untrue. And that's because the evidence cuts both ways. So I'm not sure exactly how to take it. And I'm just going to lay it out here for all of you. You know, this is what I see about it. And you can make up your minds from there. So the arguments for it being true are pretty straightforward. The Atlantic reported this piece. And then you have the four sources that Goldberg said he had, who all said that this happened, these statements. Happen. So that's the first level. After that, you had reporters from the Associated Press, the Washington Post, and they confirmed that they had sources saying the same thing. They were also anonymous. They were not on the record sources. But there was confirmation that anonymous sources were saying that this event happened and that they were saying the same thing that Goldberg had in his piece. And then what really shifted people's opinions later on is that one of Fox News' chief security correspondents confirmed this story from anonymous sources as well. No one's come on the record to say that this story happened and confirmed it. No one's put their name to this story, but there are reporters from different outlets who are confirming that they have sources saying the same thing. And of course, what defenders will say for the story is that Trump has said related things, you know, John McCain, Kaiser Kahn, and others. So this isn't that much far of a step beyond that. You're just taking this from the personal to a broader thing where Trump just doesn't get it when it comes to honoring the military in the United States. And he doesn't understand these ceremonies. So this would be another character flaw on his part. So that's the main arguments for it. You have all these news outlets and all these journalists confirming. at different. They all have different ideologies, but they can say that people are saying it. The case against this being a truthful story, or we just don't have all the elements here, is that we actually already have a description of this very event. It was already given to us, a behind-the-scenes look, in John Bolton's most recent book, And in his book, he describes this event, He and his description in his book that was already released well before this, it doesn't include any of this. It includes none of the anecdotes referenced in Goldberg's story. It includes none of the quotes that are in Goldberg's story. And when he was questioned about this by reporters from the New York Times, Bolton reaffirmed what he said in his book and said he had no knowledge of what was in the Goldberg peace. The only thing he said is that if it occurred, it didn't happen in the meetings that he was in involving this event that the White House was holding, and if it happened, it had to have happened later. So if there's no break in the story flow, and Bolton was there the entire time, that according to him, this didn't happen, and these stories and these quotes are false. And his book, you, you mean you have to give it to him, his book is not exactly a pro-Trump book. In fact, he attacks the administration pretty forthright and has notes of all his time there. No one really dis- disputes the accuracy of what he wrote along these sorts of lines. So if that this did happen and he was there, it doesn't make any sense on why he would leave out explosive quotes like this. And it it just doesn't make any sense that he would do that. It makes more sense that he would include them in there as part of his overall narrative of his time in the White House. And like I said, reporters questioned him about it. They asked him point blank, can you confirm this story? And he said no, and he is a person who is now on the record twice, both in a book when this wasn't a story in the media, and now asked about it again, and he is denying that it happened. So, at the very least, we have here, this had to have happened at another event described other than what was in the Goldberg story. It couldn't have happened if it overlapped at any point in time with John Bolton's story. At the very minimum, you have to have that. If there's a direct clash, then you have anonymous sources saying one thing and another source on the record who's not friendly to the administration saying a completely other thing. And of course, after all of that, all the other names that you have of all these former Trump officials who were there, like Sarah Huckabee Sanders and more like her, they are all denying this event happened on the record as well. So you have John Bolton's book and various other Trump officials versus anonymous sources. People going on the record versus not. And for me, the most important thing here is Bolton's book. You could just, you know, you could brush aside these other Trump officials and say, well, they're just protecting their former boss and so they're more likely to lie. The Bolden book is really the big red flag here because it says something that's radically different and you have to contend with it. The other thing that complicates this for me as far as it being true and how how much weight you should give it is when the story came out. Now, as I mentioned a couple of times already, it came out late Thursday evening. I didn't have time to put it in the newsletter. I'm not even sure if I had it referenced in any of the links in the section below because it came out late enough that I was already putting all of that in. So it comes out that late on Friday. And then early Friday morning, and in this would and when I'm talking early, I'm talking like 6.30, 7.30 a.m. because this was on Morning Joe on MSNBC. An ad was run by a group, a group, a veterans group against Trump, who used this story. And not only did they use this story to attack Trump, they had clips of other Gold Star parents reacting to the quotes in this story. So this thing was put together less than 12 hours later, completely overnight. At least that's what people would have you believe in an attack ad ready to go the next morning on a show that everyone knows Trump watches and also that people would know would end up getting a lot of airtime because it would be a major attack ad. That is an, and this is being very kind here, that is both a remarkable and very unlikely turnaround speed for an ad like that. To already have clips of Gold Star parents ready to go quoting the exact language of a piece that we're just now getting, this just smacks of a political hit. Now, this doesn't mean that the journalists are lying about what their sources are saying but rather that the sources themselves could either be lying or exaggerating and are using the journalist to get this story out there so that they can then turn around and have this ad. Because there are clear groups, like the Lincoln Project, Republican Voters Against Trump, who could be pulling these quotes together to help get this ad out there and help source this and then turn around and get these sources to the journalist that they need. I mean, you you paint out exactly how this could have gone down because there's just no way for a group like that was involved here to they had to have known what was coming beforehand to have this ad ready to go and then run it less than 12 hours jumping on this story with video clips of people reacting to it. And the thing is, this all happened at nighttime and the video clips of these people were all in the daytime And, you know, you could say this is green screen. You could say a lot of different ways this happened. But this was too fast of a turnaround to not be anything other than a planned and prepared hit. If not by the journalist, then by the activists who are acting behind the scenes using journalists to get this story out there to get a negative news cycle on Trump. So those are the two main red flags for me. The Bolton book. The quotes in his thing, and the fact that this ad came out so quickly and jumped on this so fast in order to speed this news cycle up to prevent any defense from coming forth. So this is more than likely a situation where Goldberg and others like him are just reporting whatever the sources tell them, and you can confirm that because these same sources could also talk to these other journalists. That's the other thing about this story. We know other outlets, Fox News, Washington Post, Associated Press, and some of these others, we know that they have corroborated Goldberg, but we only know that anonymous sources have confirmed that anonymous sources are saying this. this could be, these could all be the same sources, and all these journalists are talking to the exact same people, Because these are his anonymous sources, we can't really, you know, we can't tell where this is coming from. So the conventional wisdom in D.C. has shifted that to the fact that Trump has said this. And that shift happened because Fox News came out and confirmed that these reports took place. Now, like I said, this is just, this is conventional wisdom settling in that we've been able to confirm anonymous sources on this. I think it's a little too broad to say that they've confirmed anything because you just have confirmed that people are saying this in the background. That's why this ends in a stalemate for me, because even though you've confirmed that anonymous sources have said this, you have not disproven the excerpts from John Bolton's book. And so if you can't square, you can't have both of these accounts sitting out there. One of them is far less biased than the other, just when you're comparing it against these anonymous sources. So it's very weird for journalists at all these different places and all these institutions to say that they've confirmed something, but not bring forth more people or evidence to say that this actually took place. They're just saying they've got anonymous sources, too. So this suggests to me that these are the same people who are talking to all these journalists, that they were preparing this piece to go out, and that they told these groups in advance to help prepare an ad, and then the story hit. That's what this looks like. True or not, that's what it looks like happened. Now, ultimately, I don't think any of this is going to matter because there's just not enough people who read The Atlantic, and people's minds are mostly just made up before a story like this ever hits. People already know that Donald Trump has attacked John McCain. They know he's attacked Kaiser Khan. They know he's attacked just about anybody and everything because Trump doesn't let any attack go without an answer. So this is unlikely to change any minds. It's just there to help create a negative news cycle for Trump, because it also doesn't prove anything new about Donald Trump. It's a two-year-old news story, and it says nothing new about his character that we didn't already know, even if you take it fully at its face. What it does show, though, is that we're in the crunch, run, crunch time of a race, And activists and journalists are actively trying to swing the news cycles against Donald Trump because this is about reducing the number of times that Joe Biden is in the news and increasing the number of times that Donald Trump is in the news. Because just like 2016, every time Donald Trump starts dominating these news cycles and they're all negative, it hurts him. Every time Joe Biden jumps into the lead on these things, he starts getting hurt. So this is about trying to elevate one person into the news cycles over another. And this is coming at a time when we have these riots in Kenosha. And so this also would be an attempt to undermine the law and order campaign uh, motto that Donald Trump is running on because it goes directly to his claims of wanting to use the military in some of these situations. So all this is playing together. And this is pretty clearly a political hit that's being pushed by people in the background. So it could be equally true that this is a political hit and also that the quotes are true and that John Bolton didn't know anything about it. All of those things could be equally true at the same time. And that doesn't really affect the truthfulness, but it does tell you why this is coming out now, two years later. If it's true, they save this quote for now because they wanted to use it in an election and not just to release it to a journalist to use. So there is some red flags on how this is being used, but that's just a campaign. That's how these things happen in a presidential cycle. So, and we're going to get into more on this in a second. We're going to take a quick break here, and then when we get back, we will talk about where the race stands now, where we stand sitting on Labor Day and after the convention. So we going to take that break. When we come back, we'll talk about the current state of the race. Labor Day marks 57 days to go until the general election. So we're getting closer. However, voting has already started. So if you remember how I described the last 100 days, you could break it into quarters. We're getting very close to the halftime part of this election, and we're almost at the 50-day mark. But here in the second quarter, towards the end of it, people are already starting to vote. North Carolina was the first year they started sending out their mail-out ballots other states are going to follow suit soon. And in some states, they've already received completed ballots. In fact, according to early reporting, 80 people at this point have already cast their ballots for the 2020 general election, and they are in the states of Illinois, North Carolina, and South Carolina. And if you're sitting there wondering how people have already cast it, most of these are coming from military and overseas citizens who got their ballots early, so they were able to get it back early, too, so that explains why you're seeing some of this come in. This happens every cycle. Most people don't hear about it, just because, I mean, 80 people casting votes, that's not a ton, but it is true that people are already voting on this race. So from now until Election Day, you're going to have people casting their votes for the election. So people are already making up their minds, and they're already casting those ballots. So that's why Joe Biden's campaign is already running the equivalent of a prevent defense and is running the ball every play when they're on offense. And not just running the ball, they're running the ball between the tackles. They're not interested in getting a first down or doing anything like that. They want this clock to run. Run out, and they want to soak in as many votes during this time when he's leading in the polls like this and just waltz to a victory but just because some states allow early voting some do not there are 9 states that don't allow any early voting at all and the caveat to that is some forms of absentee ballots things like that things of that nature but true early voting like we have here in Tennessee where it's like 2 or 3 weeks before the election you can go in and vote at any point in time and then the polls close for 2 or 3 days and then they open up on election day that's not true of most places in the United States Most people are going on Election Day. And in some places, that's the only day you have to go, period. And one of those states that is like that, and it is important, is the state of Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is just a key swing state. They're probably going to be the kingmaker again this year. In 2016, Donald Trump shocked everyone and flipped that state, and that was... You know, the way these things move, these states sort of move in regions. When you start seeing one move, it'll help flip other states. So when Pennsylvania fell, that automatically told everyone that Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota were all going to be much closer. Because the western half of Pennsylvania, which is where Donald Trump ran up his margins, that is the part of that state is like the rest of the Midwest. You have lots of just white, non-college educated voters that Donald Trump can tap into. In fact, he didn't tap into all of them that were there in 2016. And so, whoever wins Pennsylvania is likely going to be the person who wins the 2020 race. Now, it's possible to win it and then win through another path, but just the way these things are daisy-chained together, if you win that, it shows that you have a strength in other states moving forward. So, Where Pennsylvania falls, because it's going to, you know, everybody's going to get counted on election day, that's going to tell us a lot of what's going to happen that night. So the top line number and the top line point for this election right now is this. Joe Biden's ahead and Donald Trump has a lot of work to catch up. Biden Biden's lead has narrowed, but he still has a strong lead. In June, if you look at the real clear politics average, Biden's lead over Trump peaked at 10.2 points. And right now that has dropped down to 6.9 points in the averages. So that means that since June, Donald Trump has approved his standing by 3.3 points over that period of time. And part of the problem here is that Trump just bottomed out over the summer. This is when you had peak COVID, you had peak protests, and so both Trump and Biden took a hit when the virus first came out in March and April, but then there was a division when the protests hit. That was when Trump hit his lowest, and that was when Biden started hitting some of his highest points because Biden represented the best option if you were looking to support Black Lives Matter. But what's happened since then is that support for Black Lives Matter in a lot of those related groups has either is now just tied in some of these states or it's underwater in others. So that has been between that and Donald Trump just re- reverting to the mean of his overall support. So instead of being around 40 or under 40 percent support, he's now sitting around 43, which is around where he typically is. So that helps him look, that helps narrow this gap here. So what Trump needs to do is not just recover to his mean, he needs to continue that same level of improvement in the polls over the next two months. He needs to close that gap another just about another three points to get within striking range of Biden, especially in these swing states. It doesn't really matter. Overall, where these national polls sit, what you really need is information on what's happening in these swing states. And so Harry Enton, who is now working over at CNN, but he used to be at 538, he wrote a piece saying that there's about a three-point gap right now between Joe Biden's national lead in the polls and where his standing is in some of these swing states, So if Biden is leading by eight points nationally, at a battleground state, you can count on that lead being somewhat closer to five points. So this three-point gap here, that was also a dynamic that played out in 2016. Donald Trump always polled better in swing states rather than in the national polls. And when I was looking at the impeachment polls back during... January, you know, December, January, and February, I started noticing the same trend. And I I think I even wrote about it and probably even talked about it on here some too, that if you, if you got some polls that looked where Trump support was in these few states on impeachment, where if they, because most of the impeachment polls only dealt with the national level. If you got down and looked at some of these states like Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, and others, you always found that Donald Trump was polling on impeachment three to five points better than the national average. That meant if on the national level, you know, it was about a 50-50 thing where 50% of the people wanted him impeached and 50% of the people didn't want him impeached, if you jumped into these swing states, some of them showed 55% against impeachment or 52%. So it showed Donald Trump with a much stronger margin here than what he had in the national polls and that mattered especially when you start we started counting who was gonna to have to take these votes. If you're you know a House representative and you're having to take a hard vote and you're in one of these 50-50 districts this is the, one of the worst things ever because you're having to you're having to make a vote that's on a 50-50 question you're going to alienate people no matter what you do so that was part of the political dynamics that played out there and but what's happening on the national level is that these large states like California or some of these large blue cities where Democratic votes are really concentrated, what's happening is that you're seeing these places tilt the polls on a national level, which isn't reflected in these battleground states. Now, if you're just talking about the general population of the United States, these polls are just fine. It gives you a snapshot of the entire country. But if you're talking about these swing states, they're not, it's not very accurate at all. In fact, there's a gap. So let's say that Donald Trump continues to improve another two to three points over the next two months. If he narrows the national lead of Joe Biden from 6.9 points to, let's say, just a four point national lead, then the state polls for these battleground states would be showing either a completely dead heat or Biden only leading by one or two points, which is in the margin of error, which means. And usually your margin of error is about two and a half, three points. So if you're within one to two points of each other, then you're statistically tied. Because if the polls swing up two and a half points either direction, they're still considered accurate. So if the polls end up close there, then the other thing that pops up, if you're within that you know, one to two point range in these swing states, the issues of mail-in ballots and mail-in ballot spoilage, really becomes a big issue and spoilage for you know those of you who don't know that's where people are mailing in their ballots and they don't get counted for one reason or the other this is where people either don't sign their ballots it's where they they don't have postage on it or they don't send it in or it comes in late there's just there's a number Uh, different factors that can cause a mail-in ballot to not get counted. And what we've noticed, what I've harped on in my writing and what I've harped on over the summer, is that in the primaries and in some of these special elections that have been held, the spoilage that is on these mail-in ballots that we've seen in these primaries has been very high, especially in these blue states. And so if you get close and you're talking, you know, Differences of 50 to 150,000 votes between the two of them, and let's say you've got a 1% to 2% spoilage rate, or, some, or even higher, in some of these races we've seen up to 10% spoilage rates, then that could end up swinging an election very easily. And so you're going to, you would hear just a massive outcry about voter suppression and all these other things, but it wouldn't be that. It would be ballot, ballot spoilage, which has been, everyone who is connected to this and studies this issue has been warning about now for three or four months. The post office was saying this could be an issue back in the spring, and so they were warning states they needed to adjust. And a lot of them haven't adjusted. So this is where we're heading. If this race tightens, all kinds of issues pop up. And I do expect there to be more tightening over the next couple of months, just because there normally is. You're going to see some improvement for both candidates in these polls, because this is where people, they might say to a pollster that they're not Republican or Democrat, or they just lean one way or the other. But if you had them vote, they would vote straight ticket, period. And so that causes a bump for both candidates. People the line that people say is that they start coming home. So the people who lean right go to the Republican Party because that's where they always vote, even whatever they say to the pollster. So you start seeing these leaners just start to come home, and then after they vote, they go back towards being a little bit more apathetic towards the party that they typically vote in. So another thing to watch outside of all this that is playing in play here. Is that these swing states like Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, and Pennsylvania? Trump has a lot more room where he could grow among the non voting cohorts. All of these states, as I mentioned earlier, they hold large shares of white, non college educated voters who tend to vote for Trump. In Wisconsin alone, around somewhere between 60 to 65 percent of those who didn't vote fell into this category. And this main group here has been moving away for Democrats for two or three decades now. And so if, you, if if Trump is able to get these people who are not normal voters, if he's able to pull them in and get them to vote, it would dramatically impact the where this race is going to end up. And, you, and that's, it's the hard part. There's a reason these people don't vote. And so if you can get them to vote for the first time or the first time in a long time, you will bring out voters that no one can see right now. And put another way, if Demo- Democrats, have they have a much harder needle to thread here in winning these states compared to Trump. They don't have all these different groups they can pull from. They have to take what Hillary Clinton won and then make sure Trump doesn't improve on that. They have to pull out more of the Clinton base and ensure that Trump doesn't pull out all these non-voters. Because if Trump is able to pull in non-voters and then eat in a little bit into Biden's lead among blacks and Hispanics, that's going to bring Biden's ceiling much lower. It may lower he may only have a ceiling of what Hillary Clinton hit, and he may fall below that. And if that happens, he is in trouble in these states. Because the thing about these non-voters is this. They just don't show up in polls. Now, I don't buy in, into any of the shy Trump voter thing at all, that there's people who are just not saying that they're going to vote for Trump. I don't think that's a thing. in, in you know, the famous term for it is the shy Tory voter and I just don't think that's a thing that's going. That's an impact here. Generally, everybody's already have already has their mind made up. But if you're a non-voter and you get polled, a pollster wouldn't likely they wouldn't likely include you in their batch of people getting polled. And that's because of this. Pollsters only try to screen for either registered or likely voters only. And so if you are not a voter you're not going to fall into either one of those categories. If you're a non-voter who plans on voting, the odds are you're not going to get caught in some of these polls. And so what Trump needs to do is find, find ways to pull these people and get them to come out and vote. This is not a crazy, some crazy theory. This is exactly what happened in 2012. It's what the Obama campaign did to Mitt Romney, specifically in the state of Florida. The Romney campaign focused almost exclusively on the likely or registered voter, and getting the Republican base out. They had some paltry attempts that they they put out to increase the Republican base, but it really they really didn't do a lot on that front. They were trying to get out their base and pull out what happened. The people who voted in two thousand eight, get them all to vote because if you got that again, if you got those same percentages, you would beat Barack Obama in two thousand and twelve. What the Obama campaign did was they identified and turned out people in those swing states who were not normal voters, and they ended up deciding the 2012 election. Because if you you go back and you read about the Romney campaign, they were positive that they were going to win. They did not catch and they did not see these non-voters entering into the fray because none of their polling was was able to catch it. Their net was looking for other things, and then on election day they got shocked. And so Trump needs to do the exact same thing. But the problem right now is that it remains to be seen whether or not he has the campaign that is capable of doing that very thing. All of this, all of what I've talked about so far, all of it is dependent upon Trump improving in the polls. If the election were held today... Donald Trump would lose. There's no question about that in my mind. He's down about eight points right now, seven to eight points, depending on if you're looking at Real Clear Politics versus Nate Silver's thing. I'm leaning more on Real Clear Politics, as I do most cycles, just because I don't like how Silver does his house effects on on the poll averages. I love his model, I just don't care for the poll averages. But depending on how you do that, Biden's leading by around seven to eight points. That is high enough to put him at Obama-level numbers. That means I would expect, if Biden was truly ahead by eight, I would expect him to have over 300 electoral votes, and this to be a very fast election night. So Donald Trump has a lot of work to do, and early voting is already starting. So he's got to pull these people in and get them to start voting. But, as I keep saying, we still have a long way to go. So, I'm recording this the day before Labor Day on September 6th, and there is a lot of. If if you go back to 2016 and look at the days before Labor Day on September 6th, 2016, we had not experienced just a huge volume of the stories that would end up impacting the 2016 election like meteors. So I'm just going to walk through a couple of these. I think you'll be shocked when you start hearing some of these and being reminded, oh, yeah, this happened. You may remember some of them, but you may not remember that most of them happened in under a two-month period of time. And some of them had happened in less than, you know, less than 45 or 50 days. So it was a very, very impactful and fast last stretch of the campaign. So remember, we're going to start here on September 6th and move forward. So On September 9th, 2016, Hillary Clinton gave her deplorable speech, and this is where she effectively accused half the country of being awful and racist. Now, ironically enough, that speech was her attempt at outreach to Republican voters who didn't like Trump. Go figure. She didn't mean it that way, obviously, but everyone took it that way, and that's all that matters in an election is how they end up taking it. So we still haven't hit the part of the deplorable speech at this point. On September 11th, 2016, a viral video came out showing that Hillary Clinton was had fainted while getting into a van during a 9/11 ceremony. Now this moment came at a time when Donald Trump and his supporters were hammering her for being in poor health and incapable of serving as president. And they've been doing this for months and people were saying, "Oh, you're just conspiracy mongering and this is all just fake news." But When that video came out, it gave new life to every last single one of those attacks. On October 1st, 2016, that was when the New York Times dropped their big October surprise on the Trump campaign. What they wrote was a massive expose on his taxes and how he used shady laws and deals to conceal how much taxable income he had over the years. That was their... Just on a pure, you know, journalism and reporting type deal, it was a huge story, and it had all kinds of evidence, and it didn't make a single dent in the race. But that was their big October surprise, and so a lot of media types spent time talking about it. But it didn't make it end up making a difference. But that brings us to the day that probably made. Other than the Comey letter, October 7th, 2016 was probably the single biggest news day of the cycle, although we didn't quite realize it at the time. On October 7th, 2016, that was the day we got WikiLeaks starting to dump the emails that they had hacked from Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee. And this is the exact same day that the Access Hollywood tape dropped. And that's where Donald Trump was caught on a hot mic talking about where he grabbed women. Now, this tape, it hit like a nuclear bomb on the campaign. Just blew everything apart. And Trump's numbers in the days immediately after this plummeted. And I'll literally acknowledge, when I, I can go back and look at notes or what I was writing or what I was journaling at the time. And this is where I thought Trump had lost the race because he truly did hit rock bottom after this tape came out. Some of the polls that came out after this were just awful. Now I would later come back in a few weeks after this when I was giving my prediction of where the race was going to go and um, where I thought it was a 50-50 race that could end up in an electoral college tie. So that was my prediction ended up being a lot closer than where I believed we were on October 7th. This was a massive hit on Trump that came pretty late in the campaign when you think about it. This was a little under a month or, or around a month from the actual campaign. But people also seemed to sleep on the other story of this day, which was the WikiLeaks stuff coming out. And so those continued for the rest of the news cycle, and they really, they were just sort of a steady drip, drip, drip of things that just hit Clinton every last single day. And the main th- impact that had was that it was on the Bernie Sanders-style voter, the younger voter who was looking at these leaks, seeing how the Clinton campaign had rigged the primaries, against Bernie and against them, and just became completely disillusioned with the Clinton campaign. And then just didn't end up voting. That's why she had lower margins in some of these places, because they did not want to vote. So that's how those leaks continued to impact the the campaign throughout the rest of those days. So that's October 7th. Still not done, though. On October 19th, during the third and final debate between Trump and Clinton, Trump went off, completely off the reservation, and ended up calling Hillary Clinton a, quote, nasty woman. That then spawned a social media campaign of other women calling themselves nasty women too, so it was just one of those crazy moments. So that was basically his version of the deplorable speech, although it was just directed at Clinton on October 22nd. So we're really getting close to the election now. Hillary Clinton sat before the Republican House Committee and took questions over her role in the Benghazi scandal. Now, this ended up beating up a few days. She testified before them. I think she testified before the Senate, although I'm not 100% sure. And she ended up having to take... Press and media questions over her role in this entire matter. Now, the press during this entire time, they were going gaga over her and saying, Oh, she did such a good job at these hearings. She did all the, you know, blah, 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 blah. She did all these things and she was great. But if you were watching the polls at the time, they were tightening already. People were coming home. A few days later, October 28th, probably the biggest story of the campaign. Actually, I take that back. This is the biggest story of the campaign. This is when the Comey letter drops, October 28th. This is where FBI Director James Comey sends a letter to Congress informing them that due to new information, and this is all related to emails discovered on Anthony Weiner's laptop, remember that guy? He, James Comey, was reopening the investigation into Clinton, and he needed to include this new information to Congress. That's October 28th. The polls, at the time, I wasn't sure how this was going to play out. I thought the polls were already beginning to tighten up, but this did have some kind of impact. Nine days later, he did, it was just two days before the election, Comey, he would come back and close the case and say, you know. We, we didn't find anything new, so we can close this all again. But by that point, the damage was already done. The race was tightened up even more at that point. And even further in swing states. That's what we learned later on. We didn't have enough polling happening in some of these swing states, and they really tightened up and swung over to Trump. So those are the big events that happened in 2016. So if you were sitting at, you know, on September 6th in 2016, those are the stories that awaited you over the next two months. And these are just seven massive storylines that hit during that time. There were a bunch of smaller things that happened that I'm not including here that you could go back and find. I'm not including all the other small things that people talked about on a daily basis. We were on a roller coaster during that period of time. Now, I don't know if we'll have a similar roller coaster in this campaign, but we've already seen one Trump hit come out in the form of the Atlantic piece. So that's coming, you know, September 6th. So it's falling pretty in line with some of these other big stories. And we also have the virus. We have these protests and the violence, just the outright violence and anger in these protests is higher than anything we ever saw in 2016. We have people who are dying in some of these protests who are being targeted because of their political beliefs. So where we are now is much different than where we were in 2016. And so I hear this, this point over and over again where people talk about how the polls in this race are so much more stable. And I think that leaning on that stability... Because Biden has led for this entire time. There hasn't been a point in time where Donald Trump has led Joe Biden in the averages. That's important. And so when people are pointing to stability, they're pointing to that. And I think there have been more swings than that. Donald Trump has been as close as four, four and a half points to Joe Biden in the national polls, and he's been as far away as 10 points. That's about a six point, six and a half point swing variance there where things can go. That's quite a bit of movement. And right now we're in the middle of those two. And this can still keep moving, moving forward. But the point is this. There's a lot of stuff that can happen. And the conditions for where we're sitting now are a lot more ripe for radical things to happen than they were in 2016. So I don't know where things are going to land at the end of all this. But things are ripe for something big to impact this election in a major way. It happened in 2016. It's bound to happen again just because... This is 2020. This is what I would expect at this point. The conditions are ripe, and it wouldn't take much to cause an explosion. So that's where I see the race right now. Biden is obviously in the lead, but there's a long road that we have to go in these next two months, and we just have no idea what's in front of us over the next two months. But we do know the lot happened in 2016, so buckle up because this is the really bumpy part of the election season. So that's the end of segment two. I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll do this week's light item and get you out of here. In this week's light item segment, we're going to celebrate heroes. Sometimes heroes come from places you least expect, like a random night in a public hearing in City Hall. That's where one of those heroes emerged in Lincoln, Nebraska, this past week with the speech heard round the world. Now, I'm not going to spoil it because it's truly great, but here is Ander Christensen's speech before his local city council in Lincoln, Nebraska.
1: I promise I won't take up too much of your time here. My name is Ander Christensen. Uh, I live at 1212 Twin Ridge Road. Lincoln has the opportunity to be a social leader in this country. We have been casually ignoring a problem that has gotten so out of control that our children are throwing around names and words without even understanding their true meaning and treating things as, as though they're normal. I go into nice family restaurants and I see people throwing this name around and pretending as though everything is just fine. I'm talking about boneless chicken wings. I propose that we as a city remove the, excuse me, I'm trying to, yeah. yeah. excuse me, sure. come on. I propose that we as a city remove the name boneless wings from our menus and from our hearts. These are our reasons why. Number one, nothing about boneless chicken wings actually come from the wing of a chicken. We would be disgusted if a butcher was mislabeling their cuts of meats, but then we go around pretending as though the breast of the chicken is its wing. Number two, boneless chicken wings are just chicken tenders, which are already boneless. I don't go to order boneless tacos. I don't go and order boneless club sandwiches. I don't ask for boneless auto repair. It's just what's expected. And then number three, we need to raise our children better. Our children are raised being afraid of having bones attached to their meat. That's where meat comes from. It grows on bones. We need to teach them that the wing of a chicken is from a chicken and it's delicious. I propose that we rename boneless wings in the city of Lincoln. We can call them Buffalo style chicken tenders. We can call them wet tenders. We can call them saucy nugs or trash. We can take these steps and show the country that where we stand and that we understand that we've been living a lie for far too long. And we know it because we feel it in our bones. Thank you.
0: So anyway, that's who I'm voting for now. He got my vote for the 2020 election. I think you should vote for him, too. He hit all the points to get my vote and he ended up doing a thing. He went on after this, and he ended up getting a special gig doing a eclipse with a Nebraska football. That video was also funny, so I highly recommend you go check that out. Ander Christensen, the new hero that America didn't know that it needed. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.